Hi, I'm Carice Hendrick. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. On these solo episodes, I will primarily be speaking about online fraud that impacts e-commerce companies. But if you're not in online fraud prevention, but are fascinated with scams and financial fraud, stick around. You'll more than likely learn several ways to protect yourself against cyber criminals too. Welcome to the Online Fraudcast. Well, get ready for another solo episode. I uh, will be lining up other merchant interviews soon. I heard a lot of great feedback about the Jacqueline Hart interview. No big surprise there. I uh, think I made it very clear that I think highly of her, and I'm I'm glad um, you all got to find out a little bit of why I do. Um... I got a little bit behind this week because I had a family member who um, underwent surgery to remove a, a cancerous tumor, and I'm being respectful of their identity, but they are a very close family member to me. And so, to be honest, um, maybe like 20% of my week was spent thinking about fraud, and that's not normal. Usually, it's a heck of a lot more. Uh, But in addition to being the only visitor that they could have at the hospital and caretaker, etc., the U.S. just feels really um, fragile right now, and there's just a lot going on, and Um, I, if you follow me on LinkedIn, you know that my same strong sense of justice that makes me passionate about fraud fighting also makes me passionate about everyone having an equal chance and equity uh, within our country and in our world. And so I've been very sad uh, by everything going on uh, in my country, in my city of Seattle. Uh, For those of you who have asked, I am completely fine. Uh, In fact, one of the... uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Autonomous Zone in Capitol Hill actually lives on my street, and I spoke with them last night. It's a lot more peaceful than anyone is really showing on TV. The boring stuff just doesn't get covered. Um, and I'm staying away from it purely um, because I can't risk giving my family member who's still recovering from surgery COVID-19. So <laughs> life is just a lot right now. But when it comes to this episode, I wanted to make sure that I still showed up um, in the state that I'm in. So please forgive me, (laughs) kind of all over the place. But I wanted to try a new format of the podcast called AKA or Ask Carice Anything. I get asked a lot of questions um, from a lot of merchants all over the world, probably hundreds at this point, and I try really, really hard to answer them all. I have to say that while I was going through my LinkedIn box to um, my LinkedIn inbox, (laughs) say that fast four times, um, I, I realized that I have just not been as good about replying to messages as I have wanted to be, um, as I would be if everything else was, you know, quiet and not nothing going on. Um, but it has been, um, the last several months I've been very busy in my business. And then on top of that, um, just life and everything else. So I really apologize. Also, anyone who's listening from LinkedIn, so annoying that I can't organize my inbox or delete messages from just people wanting me to check out their product. Um, so that, that lends itself to it, but no excuses. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, well, you didn't respond to my message, feel free to write it again. Um, seriously, I, I won't be seeing it as a nag. I, I genuinely want to help people. I'm just trying to balance it with all the areas of my life. And my time management has just not been great since... <laughs> I'm sharing my whole house with my family 24-7 and can't just go run to a coffee shop uh, to get some stuff done. So, um, yeah, I think I've probably made enough excuses for myself at this point. So, uh, all that to be said, I 
thought that it would be helpful to hear some of the questions that I get from people and hear the answers. And uh, I noticed a lot of them are like, hey, do you know anyone that I could talk to about this? Or do you, can you introduce me to other people in my vertical? Or um, some of them were vendors saying, hey, what are merchants thinking? What do they care about right now? Um, so there's a lot of that, but then there's also some substantive questions. And my thought is if these questions were important enough to the people asking them that they reached out to me, that they may also be questions that you're having as well. So if you like this episode style, please let me know. And if you have any questions, please also let me know. Um, I thought that I'd also start with kind of a funny story. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you already are aware of this, but uh, since the beginning of COVID-19, which feels like it's been a year, but I think it's been about three and a half months. Uh, I think it was the end of February, beginning of March. I started two merchant collaboration groups that are completely free for people that are merchants in these verticals, one for retailers. Uh, we were primarily starting to talk about the high did not receive claims and uh, we learned about refunding and I know I've talked about that before. Um, I, I learned about refunding the next day after the first call and then another one for ticketing and travel merchants who really were thrown for a loop when all this happened because their sales dropped and then their chargebacks skyrocketed and there's been and some rule provisions or changes to the guidelines temporarily for those merchants in the verticals. So it was really important for them to be able to talk with each other and say, hey, what are you doing for this? How are you responding to these chargebacks? What's your win rate, etc." So we've been continuing those calls because they've been very helpful to everyone on the call and I genuinely enjoy them. Um, I really, in fact, I think I may be adding one or two more for different verticals. Um, so, and, and if you are a retailer or in the travel and ticketing space and you're not part of those calls, feel free to reach out to me as well. Uh, for those of you who don't have my email address, um, you can just reach out to me on, on LinkedIn. So, um, all that to say this past week, um, I did keep those calls on the books regardless of me caretaking, uh, my family members. So, um, they were on the same day. And on the first call, someone said, hey, you know, we talk about current fraud trends and stuff and people were talking about how sales are increasing and that's a good sign. It's primarily in the US, but there are um, other callers from the EU that join, especially, um, you know, in the morning ones, uh, morning my time. And uh, so one merchant said, you know, is anyone else getting uh, orders from Donald Trump? And we all kind of laughed and someone else said, oh, well, I got a few orders for Kobe Bryant last year or, you know, last week. And um, I said, well, after Michael Jackson died, when I was running my own fraud team, we saw several orders with his name. You know, it's common. Fraudsters need to come up with new usernames all the time. And so they may just pay homage to someone who has recently passed away or someone who's famous, well-known, etc. So we kind of just kind of laughed it off and we're like, no, but, you know, glad you checked it. And they verified it. It was fraud. It was not really him um, making a purchase. And then I get on the next call and partway through the call when we're talking about trends, someone's like, well, has anyone else gotten some orders from someone really uh, well-known? And I instantly was like, are you talking about Donald Trump? <laughs> and uh, sure enough, they were. They were able to share a lot more information. It turns out that four of his credit card numbers were uh, revealed on Twitter. And people, I don't even know if they're really fraudsters. I think it was just people looking for an opportunity and thinking it'd be funny to place an order on his credit card. Um, posted it all over Twitter and like, you know, a couple people posted that they had successful transactions, but I don't know if those were approved uh, by the fraud team. And I do know that by the time all the orders came to this particular merchant, they all were declined by the bank. But what was interesting was it was four main credit card numbers, but hundreds of people using those same four credit card numbers with different email addresses and different uh, device IDs and locations and phone numbers, etc. That's not common. Usually, I mean, there's millions of credit card numbers out there. So you're usually not seeing the same 
three or four being used over and over and over and over again. I did a quick Google search and there were a couple articles about it. Uh, apparently the um, his Amex black card, the Centurion one, was the most popular. And uh, I, Anonymous was taking credit for it, but there's some questions about who did it or how. Um, but the picture I saw online, someone actually just took a picture of his, his information, including the PIN number and the CID, which is um, for Amex, four numbers. Um, so anyway, just kind of a fun story. I don't know if it's fun, but it's also, I think it kind of shows that a lot of times fraud is on the front lines, uh, fraud and trust and safety. And Brett and I talked about uh, the role of Twitter's trust and safety and other social media's safety last week on the podcast and uh, how, you know, really you're at the forefront and making policies that can sometimes be in the news. And so it's important to consider that while you're... <laughs> Um, while you're creating those policies. Uh, just like Jacqueline talked about really going through the details and really figuring out, you know, where do we stand as a company and bringing other people in, not just your fraud or trust and safety team is super important. But um, in this case, there were lots of online merchants who saw these numbers and um, it definitely was the other side of the story. The articles that were published were talking about how they, that they were used or that they were exposed, but I happened to uncover uh, that they were actually used at these companies and uh, that they were declined by the issuer. So anyway, fun little fraud story. I know we all love them. I'm gonna dive into Ask Carice Anything. The question is, how do you think a risk team should measure success? Besides the obvious approval rate, chargeback rate, false positive rate, etc. This is one I feel like I talk about a lot, like at conferences or webinars, um, especially with my clients. And it's something that I'm asked often. And this could probably be its own episode, but um, obviously, you know, standard KPIs, uh, just like this person mentioned, um, approval rate. So the percentage of orders that your team is approving, I think it's also important to look all the way from the authorization down. So a lot of times for a client, I'll look at, well, how many orders were authorized? Then how, uh, so how many orders were attempted? And then how many orders were authorized? So that's one metric. Um, some clients I've had have had up to like 20% decline rate. Others, it's, you know, just a, f a few basis points. So it really depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the type of fraud you have. Uh, if you have low dollar transactions and digital goods, you're probably more susceptible to card testing, which means you'll probably have a pretty high decline rate. And those are the orders that were attempted, but that the bank canceled for whatever reason. They're not going to authorize the funds for you to hold so the order doesn't go through. But there are things that the fraud team can do to reduce that number. Um, or if you have a payments team, that's probably their sweet spot. But there's too many companies out there that don't have a payments team. So I never want to just assume and say, oh, let them handle it. Um, but by diving into the decline codes and other behavior, you may be able to figure it out. I know uh, there was one gaming company several years ago who couldn't figure out why they had such high decline rates. And when I suggested that they look at the um, decline reason code, which to be fair, a lot of them are going to be a general decline or just do not honor, but it still can be important to look at that. Um, and also to look at their bins. I, I know a lot of people don't have access to that, the first six digits of the card, but if you do, that can be extremely helpful because in this case, this gaming company that had low dollar transactions realized that there were certain banks that were just declining every single attempt for their merchant and ID. And uh, what we ended up untangling, and I ended up you know, reaching out to Visa and connecting them and, and all that when I was in my previous role, was that they had been on um, uh, the TC40 list or the Visa RIS report, IRIS, and they didn't have high chargebacks because they were low dollar. So the banks were eating those, but that actually meant the banks were like, well, we're having to pay for these out of our own pocket, these $20, $10, $30 chargebacks. We think that the merchant is fraud. So we're just going to decline all of them. So that's another thing that you can uncover when you're looking through that data. Uh, other things to track are your approval rates. So out of the orders that were authorized by the bank, 
what percentage of them are you approving because you feel like they are on real cards to real people. Oh, they're all real cards, but the, the card holder is the one using the card. And uh, that can be helpful as well, because if it's too high, then you're probably a pretty high false positive rates. You're probably canceling too much. If it's really low, but you have high chargebacks, well then, you know, you may want to take, start to cancel more orders and um, take on a little bit more risk on the chargeback side. A lot of those variables, a lot of all the KPIs really vary on a lot of things. It's not just about your, you know, average ticket or your average order volume, your, uh, items that you're selling, whether they're digital goods, whether it's, you know, physical items that are being shipped, whether it's a subscription, all these things are going to vary a lot. So it's hard to say, okay, this is what you should target for those KPIs, because I feel like that's going to be the next question for the next episode. Um, there are some good surveys out there that I do try to use. I would love to write another survey similar to uh, the CNP fraud operations survey that I helped to create in 2018. And so uh, hopefully that'll happen. But uh, whether it does or not, I just, there's such a need for more information and more data and I'm aware of it and I can only do so much. But I, I think part of the problem is just a lot of the data out there comes from solution providers, which so grateful for and it's really important but a lot of times they aren't asking the questions that merchants actually need answers to in order to do their jobs correctly so um, that can be a challenge but you kind of make do with what you have for now so beyond approval rate, uh, looking at the balance between the approval rate, the chargeback rate, and then false positives and how you're measuring false positives is going to vary as well um, whether it's through phone calls to customer service and which ones are resolved or the person reattempted and was able to pass through or um, just taking a arbitrary percentage and assuming that that's how much uh, false positives you have. There's various ways of doing it. Um, the one other thing I wanted to say is the KPIs don't only really vary based on your business model and all those other things I listed. They also really vary based on the provider that you use. And if you're using them to the best way possible, um, what combination of providers are you using? Do you have authentication and verification and a core system? Are you, you know, there's so many different risk stacks you can do, but it really varies. I, there are definitely some uh, tools, unfortunately, that I've seen that have pretty high um, chargeback rates, they have low approval rates, and they have really high manual review rates, which is another thing that you should be tracking. Um, and that usually means it's time to get another tool. The problem is you may not realize that it's the tool because the people that you're reaching out to to ask questions about these numbers probably work for that company and so what their idea of good is may be not industry standard so just something to keep in mind and i'm certainly i am not one to name names and uh, i think everyone who listens to the podcast knows that by now um so i won't but that definitely i've seen the data enough to be able to say that it really runs the gamut so uh, in addition to all the other things about your own business, so knowing those things, knowing what you know you can do and the risk tolerance of the business and all those other things, I think it's super important to know that those three metrics that this person shared, the approval rate, the chargeback rate, and the false positive rate are kind of like a triangle. And so you want to keep them as balanced as possible. Another uh, analogy I've heard is like they're the three um, legs on a stool. And if one is longer than the other, the stool is not going to be steady. Um, other things to look at are, you know, your contribution to your company goals. So, uh, you know, how are you able to reduce those false positives in order to increase sales? Or how are you able to boost up certain campaigns or, or new products or new business offerings? Um, I think that's not really something you can measure in a metric per se, but it is something that you should be tracking. I also suggest that fraud teams and fraud leaders especially are tracking the amount of money that they've saved the company and are providing that to their 
you know, their leadership, especially at the time of uh, reviews, but also just in general. Uh, I think a big mistake that we all make is we make the fraud or trust and safety team insulated. And so nobody else in the company really understands what you do and they don't understand how good you are at it. So being able to convey those things can be extremely helpful and can be the difference between getting new resources and getting new technology and not. Um, I've seen it many times. <laughs> I feel like, so, I mean, several of my clients have brought me in and the very first thing we've done is kind of do a level set on um, their own metrics and comparing them to the publicly available data from the core surveys out there. So, you know, LexisNexis True Cost Fraud Survey, the CyberSource Survey, and then there's a few others that come out that uh, are good as well. Um, but they're not always annual, so that's why I'm not really thinking of them off the top of my head. Um, you know, just KPIs in general. I, I'm going to dive a little bit more into chargeback KPIs for another question later, but um, that's kind of a high level. There's so many ways you can go with this. You can measure too much or you can measure not enough. But I think those are really the core things that are going to tell you the health of your efforts and your fraud strategies and knowing that you're always going to have to tweak and, and tinker with them to push the envelope, push the sales that you're able to approve while also keeping your company losses relatively low. So don't just set it and forget it. It's never going to be that easy. Um, another thing I just wanted to mention as far as, you know, how should a risk team measure success? I think the overall culture and employee well-being is so important. Um, I, I think that fraud teams in general just get really burnt out and also feel unappreciated. And that a lot of times means that people are leaving the company with all their domain knowledge and going somewhere else. Uh, when I was at the MRC, we did a study on you know how often people in the in the membership anyways change jobs and it was about 33 percent almost exactly it was about a third every year got a new job um which means that you could kind of reverse that and say on average the average professional in fraud prevention and in payments as well um is at each company for about three years and I think a lot of that has to do with the inability for, you know, upward mobility, feeling appreciated, uh, wanting a new challenge, all of those things. And I often hear from people that are looking for uh, new jobs or who just need to vent a little bit about their current situation. And uh, I did start a group on LinkedIn called, um, let me pull it up so I get the name right, Online Fraud Payment and chargeback job opportunities. Uh, I haven't posted it for a few days just because of everything going on in my life, but um, it is a place for hiring managers to post things. Um, we have almost about 300 members, so um, it's a good group of people focused on fraud, and it's solely for the purpose of sharing job postings and um, helping others uh, in this time where there are several people who have unfortunately Lost their positions due to the uh, economic downturn led by COVID-19. So um, that was kind of, um, that was the first one. I, I kind of glossed over it, but I hope that that was clear. Um, you know, I could be so much more detailed, but then again, I wouldn't be a good consultant if I just gave it all away, right? <laughs> I'm kidding, guys. I'm kidding. I give a lot away. Um, a lot of it is specific to the business itself, the actual, like the granular metrics that you want to do. So that's actually why I'm not going down that rabbit trail. So here's another question from a retailer that has both online stores and uh physical stores and physical locations. So uh, this person said, we are building a Boppis slash Boris program. So for those of you that don't know, Boppis, I, I say Boppis, other people say Bopis. Uh, buy online pickup in store is what that stands for. It's an acronym. Boris is buy online reserve in store. So uh, like for a fashion retailer, you want to try something on or, you know, shoes, clothes, something like that. You might just want to reserve it. Um, sporting goods can sometimes be in that situation as well. I know there are some companies that are doing Boris programs with cars. Um, so sky's the limit there. Uh, 
And they said, I have a few questions around the e-com returns performed at the store. So they're concerned about the items that are purchased online, but tried to return on in-store. And a lot of the challenges for retailers with that is that their systems are totally different. Their POS system in-store is completely different than their e-commerce system. And a lot of them have undergone the (laughs) deep work of untangling those systems and and trying to bring them together or just... uh, Uh, integrating a new system that can integrate both sides. Um, That's why multi-channel and omni-channel were such buzzwords for about four or five years, a few years ago. Um, But some stores are still trying to work their way up there. And I know this retailer in particular was considering it before, but with COVID-19 and all their stores being closed for so long, this is obviously a way that they can try to recuperate some sales. So going on with the question, right now we're looking at how to create a workaround for e-commerce returns in our stores. We figure that stores will need to perform a non-receipt returned to accept the merchandise and credit back the customer in that moment. To do this, we're asking that customers bring in their email confirmation and receipt an original form of payment. So just to recap that, there won't be a correlating sale in the store POS system. So they will be providing a return without a receipt so that they can provide that uh, the money going back on the same card that it was purchased on. Usually you're looking for the sale so that you can attach it to that. It'll be detached. Um, Do you know if there is any risk with customers creating fake confirmation emails? I might be paranoid, but since we aren't cross-checking these orders with anything in our system, I'm afraid that customers will bring in merchandise from other retailers or stolen merchandise from us with fake email confirmations or receipts to get their money back. Do you think this is a valid concern? I'm wondering if other merchants also face this problem or do they not because they have systems integrated so they can process the refund in their system without an issue? Um, Yes, uh, merchants have varying issues and and some do have this. I think there are a lot of um, the bigger named companies that, you know, bigger name, bigger budget uh, that have already integrated it, but it's still a hassle for a lot of things. There's a lot of system workarounds that have to happen for this, Um, but it is such an ease for convenience for the customer that... uh, it's sometimes you have to forego the risk in order to provide that kind of that level of safety or comfort that a customer has going, okay, if I buy these items and they don't fit or they don't work for me, I don't have to go to the mailbox or go to the post office and return them. I can just go to the store and do it. Um, So it's an important thing to offer, especially as people aren't able to really shop in store right now and, and try things on a lot. Um, I think that for this question, as far as do you know if there's any risk that customers are creating fake confirmation emails? A- absolutely. Those have been done many times before. But usually for the biggest of the biggest companies, like big box stores, the bigger um, electronics chains, they all saw that several years ago when they were just starting their Boppus or Boris programs. For most of them, it was Boppus. So buying online and picking up in store. Um, now you see things like um, they'll scan your scan your email receipt so that it can be connected, but that means that they have an integrated system. So um, I do know that back when all this was start, first starting, that was a concern. I think that another thing to take in consideration is how big is your store and how much of a target is it for fraudsters? Are they going to go to that much level of concern for the products that you have or the brand that you have? Um, that's the first thing and then the other is to you know provide you could provide a actual email to each store you know basically sending it out in a communication and an inner store communication and saying this is what a confirmation email looks like if you see anything different please you know contact us or or whatever you know you decide that the system is for that um i think that for smaller or mid-sized retailers that aren't really on like massive huge targets um i think you're okay for a little while for this i I do think that um you'll want to watch it 
and and see if all of a sudden you have a really high spike in uh, returns without receipt, you know, from online. And you could also track them by store, which could be interesting. I do this with uh, chargebacks, like when I work with companies that have franchises or other uh, in-person stores. I will look at the chargeback rate or look at the return rate or look at the um, authorization rate of those individual stores from a data perspective. So I'm not like digging up each one because in some cases it can be thousands, but I'm at least looking at it to say, what are the outliers? And I have found some crazy things. Like I've found employees who are uh, returning things on their own card. I've found, um, employees that are using stolen credit cards uh we've found uh i found locations that obviously weren't checking or caring about how valid the transactions were because they would have high or how valid the payment method was i mean um they would have high number of declines because people are like oh try this card oh try that card oh how about this card and maybe they're all different card number card holders names and they just aren't paying attention um and then you'll see you know fraud chargebacks associated with that as well so i think it's really good when you have physical locations to do that data exercise and so i would say every month after you implement this process do that to be able to see are there any stores that are really returning a lot of things online or you know in this case non-receipt returns you can track that it's also important to know are they using that function for anything else for a non-receipt return because that can get kind of wonky um, if they're also doing it for when people come in and don't actually have a receipt for the goods um, the other thing i was going to say from a chargeback perspective is that you're going to want to ensure that you are tracking this refund in some way back to the customer that purchased it online. Because say I purchase something from your store and I return it in person in the store. So I buy it online, sorry, and then I go to return it in your store and you do a non-receipt uh, return and it's obviously not connected to that original e-commerce transaction because it was in store. Well, now I can call my bank and say, hey, I didn't get the item or I returned it. I was owed a refund. So that would be credit not processed. And you would have not you wouldn't have a leg to stand on if you didn't have some way to tie those back. So I don't know if that means the store scanning and emailing you a copy of the receipt. I you know, so that you can have someone manually do it. That is so manual, but just for a workaround while you're building up systems. Um, I happen to know this this merchant that asked the question and I know that they don't have a lot of resources. So I'm kind of thinking outside the box and manually for them on purpose. But obviously if you had systems integrated, that would change everything. But these are things to consider. Um, when, Like I said earlier, whenever you're coming up with policies or processes, it's really important to think it all the way through. And that's something that I actually really enjoy doing. And uh, one of my former clients called me, what was it, something like the fraud psychic or something? Because I would be like, well, I'm worried about if you implement this tool or this process that it's going to impact X, like your approval rate or your chargeback rate, etc. And every single time they would do something kind of against my... Uh, my suggestions were they would change course within a few weeks and go, oh, okay, yeah, that and and the thing that I predicted happened would happen. So um, I don't think that means I'm a psychic. It just means I know this stuff. And I, I know a lot of you guys do too. So, you know, once you start playing it through, you can kind of you can anticipate the effect of the cause. Um, so going through that, I think would be important. So next question, this is from someone in Europe, because I know we're pretty US uh, focused and I know we have a lot of awesome international listeners. So um, this is regarding 3D Secure 2.0 um, to comply with SCA, which is the secure. Oh, gosh, guys, I know this. I know this well. I was going to say uh, SRC, but yeah, no, I'm getting all wrong. I'm just it's a Saturday and my brain is full. So. Go look up what SCA means. <laughs> I swear I know it. <laughs> Secure commerce. I, I, oh my gosh. I, wow. <laughs> um, I 
heard somebody say the other day that their brain had gas. And I think that's another way to say like the word brain fart, which is kind of common in the U.S. It's like when you're like, uh, I don't know what that is when you blank. Um, but I feel like that's true in this moment. So the... Um, the email says, I just finished your episode on 3D Secure and it left me with one question. What abuse are we seeing with 3D Secure 2.x, i.e. the versions that comply with SCA in Europe, proper two-factor authentication? Are they safer? Is Brett seeing discussions about how to bypass those? If you have any insights on that, I'm sure it would be a valuable topic for many merchants. Uh, so I responded to their email and um, I'm going to kind of read what that said because I um, so basically I mean from my perspective the um, the merchants that that have are in not just that if they live there but if they have uh, websites in countries where 3d secure 2.0 is mandated like in Europe India um, is it in Australia? I can't remember, but there's several markets that it is, UK, etc. The fraudsters are pretty much staying away from those for the most part because there's just so much room to play in the US because 3D Secure isn't you know mandated across the board because consumers aren't used to it because there are still a lot of issuers who don't participate because there are a ton of merchants that don't participate. The path of least resistance is so easy in the U.S. that there isn't a lot of fraud attempts to try to get around 2.0, etc. From my perspective, um, and I've I recently worked with a company that um, had tons of different merchant IDs and in um, various countries all over the world and wherever there was 3D secure, they barely had chargebacks and barely had fraud. So what a surprise when they started their US website a couple of years ago and found out that it's not universal. So that's from my perspective, but I want to say that I do primarily focus in the US market. So if anyone has any um, corrections on that, please let me know. I don't ever want to speak out of turn. There are some things I know a lot more about than others. Um, and 3D Secure International is one of them. So um, you know, because there's so many card numbers exposed, etc. Like I said, I think that the majority of the professional fraudsters anyway are sticking to the US. However, I checked with Brett and he had an interesting perspective and, and that was that it's all about the bin. Um, I asked him kind of what that meant and he um, uh, he said that they do their research. So, and he said this before, I mean, in the US, but it's the same with Europe too. So if they want to defraud a merchant with 3DS 2.0 or just with 3D Secure in general, they then look for bins that don't support 3D Secure. And if that's impossible, which it more than likely would be in the countries where it's mandated. Um, they then find bin numbers that are easy to reset the 3D secure password. And he also said that some bins, uh, the password is just six zeros on 3D secure, like the first pin. So as long as nobody's changed it, as long as the customer hasn't changed it, which I mean, how often do they really take that stuff seriously? It probably works. It can default to that. So a lot of banks just say, okay, everybody's password is six zeros and then go in and change it once you use it. Um, but who knows if they force that reset or anything. Um, other bin numbers, uh, the password is only the social security number and date of birth, which he said is very common in all caps. Uh, so know your bin is the name of the game when it comes to 3D Secure. Uh, Brett and I may be talking about this on a, on a future episode um, together, but I just wanted to answer this question and um, provide that insight because I honestly didn't realize that. And it also goes to show just how much the fraudsters do their research. They know more about bin numbers than the majority of online merchants. The reason for that is because, and I think I've talked about this before, but the card brands don't want to release uh, bin databases. So the only bin databases there are really is either on the dark web, within criminal communities, or there are some online that have been created, but they're not super reliable and um, 
it's kind of at your own risk. So I do know a couple of merchants that have kind of created it and compiled it on their own and they have their own internal bin database. But the reason why the card brands don't want you to have it is because they don't want you to discriminate based on card type. Uh, rewards cards like air miles are historically the most expensive to process from an interchange perspective, which is the fee that goes from uh the merchant to the issuing bank for the and to the card brands for the privilege of being able to um, accept payments on that card and, and online. And so their fear has always been that merchants would then discriminate against those cards and not accept them. I, I don't think that that would actually really happen just because um, merchants would be turning down a lot of money, but you never know. And I understand the reason for it, but because we're at such a disadvantage there, it's even scarier how much these guys know about each bin. Are they are they registering people? Are they not registering? Are they participating? Are they not participating? Do they just have these very easy passwords on every single account until somebody changes it and they're easy to use? So uh, just, just kind of some food for thought. <laughs> um. The last question I think I'll answer today, and I have a few for next time, if this is a popular format for everyone, uh, maybe once a month or so we'll do this. What's the best way to calculate chargeback metrics? Oh my gosh, I could, again, a whole other episode on this. But, um, and I have talked about it before. Last year, I did a pretty big deep dive into chargebacks for an hour, and I've talked about them you know, here and there. I think anyone who's listened for a while knows that this is one of my favorite topics. Um, I love chargebacks. People always question me, but um, I love the challenge. I love knowing the rules and creating custom templates for my clients that are like per the rules. And I just, I love being able to reduce the number of chargebacks coming in and increase the amount of money that merchants are able to do. It For me, I think it's great because I get to really see the results fairly quickly within a few months and they're very rewarding. And because chargebacks are subjective, uh, there is usually a lot of room for improvement, especially when you use the approach that I do, which is pretty um, specialized and, and I have a... Um, custom approach that has really worked especially for merchants that have a lot of friendly fraud so not meaning to go off on that tangent um i actually have a full roster of clients right now so i don't even i'm not trying to pitch i'm just trying to explain i swear <laughs> um so calculating chargeback metrics the very first one i recommend is to calculate your chargeback ratio the same way that your merchant processor is calculating it especially for visa and mastercard who have the excessive chargeback monitoring programs so if you're writing this down, the Visa um, math equation is the total number of transactions you've had this month, not dollars, just number of transactions divided. Oh, sorry. Actually, I got that wrong. I got the numerator and the denominator mixed up. So actually take the um, number of chargebacks that you've had this month and divide it by the number of transactions you've had this month. And that will give you your ratio for chargebacks. For MasterCard, it's actually the number of chargebacks you have this month divided by the number of sales you had last month. So that actually really comes in handy for retailers with the whole December, January thing, because they have such high sales in December but typically lower sales in January, but higher chargebacks. So um, I think the reasoning behind it, I've never really asked anyone at MasterCard, but I think the reasoning is because a lot of these chargebacks are coming from the month before or the last three months before. So they're trying to give you a little bit of wiggle room, but it is a little bit more complex. But I recommend doing this so that you don't get surprised if you know, so that you know where you are in your ratio. And so you're not just randomly getting a letter telling you that you're on what I call the naughty list, the excessive chargeback monitoring program and not be. And when your company says, well, how how did you not know this before? You can't answer that. I've seen that way too many times. So I just say calculate your ratio at all times per card brand it will help you a lot. It's also a really good number to share with leadership uh, so that they know, you know, it's, it's a good trackable number that if you are able to reduce the number of incoming chargebacks, it's a great way to say, hey, you know, six months ago we had X, we had, you know, 
0.8% of our chargebacks were, um, or 0.8% of our sales were chargebacks. Now it's 0.3%. Um, and then also doing the dollar amount is helpful as well. So for internally, I think it's good to do dollar amount as well, but you don't really need to do the ratio on the dollar amount unless that's something that your company wants you to report. But it is good for you to track the dollar amount of losses. I also think it's important to uh, distribute them, um, sort them based on reason code. That said, I've said this many times, the fraud reason code is kind of the catch-all for all, uh, for most banks because it's the easiest one for them to win and sometimes the hardest for the merchants to win. And also, uh, there's no follow-up for them. So, you know, it, it's the shortest one to file when you're on the phone. And when you are on the phone in a call center for an issuer, you're judged on call times. You're judged on how many follow-ups you have. You're judged on those things. So the default is just, oh, fraud. Um, but you still can gain a lot. I've worked with clients that when I do this exercise, they see that fraud isn't really their problem. It's, you know, credit not received. And so then we try to figure that part out or it's not as described. And so we try to, you know, look for patterns there. It's uh, services not rendered. We look for patterns there. So that's one way that can really help you understand why they're coming in so that you can try to change things up front to reduce future chargebacks that would be similar. Um, fraud I generally suggest that merchants have a practice of having someone with fraud training do reverse engineering on those fraud reason code chargebacks to determine what the true percentage of fraud chargebacks are. I think that that's actually vital for companies, uh, but I know that I'm uh, one of the only ones who is vocal about that anyway, but I think it's a really good way to um, make sure that you're really staying on top of that. Other things, um, your win rate, your true win rate. Win rate is not the number of first-time chargebacks you've won. Win rate is the number of first-time chargebacks you won that didn't come back as a second-time chargeback. It's a real challenge that processors do not automatically calculate this for you. It's because there's not an action for them to take. And that's what they're reporting on is their actions. So they report on the first time chargeback win in quotation marks because they are returning the money to you. They're also passing that chargeback on to the issuer to review. But when the issuer looks at the chargeback, if they decide, okay, you know what, the merchant has some pretty good evidence. They probably would win if we went to arbitration with Visa. Let's, uh, we'll just accept the chargeback. You're not ever, there's no other action for your processor to take. So you just get to keep that money, but it's not reported on. Similarly, but on the opposite side, if the issuer looks at it and they're like, nope, we still think that we have enough evidence to be right in this. We're gonna send it back as a second time chargeback or a pre-arbitration, then, you're going to get a notice. The problem is, is that a lot of merchants are just calculating out their win rate by the first time and they're not following the money. So a lot of times they may say that they have a 60% win rate, but when you actually look at it, they lost 30%, they lost 50% of those. So really their win rate's only 30%. Um, I actually just heard from, uh, or learned this week that a very, very large merchant um, has been having their processor fight all uh, arbitrations for them, but it ends up costing the processor $500 a piece for whichever ones they lose. So they had to come up with a compromise for that. But um, there are some cases where I do advise that going to arbitration could be a really good exercise. I had one uh, client a few years ago who had high dollar transactions, but very low profit margin. So they were only making a few dollars on a transaction, but if that transaction came back as fraud, they would be out hundreds of dollars. And they asked about arbitration and I said, you know, it's really up to you. Here's, you know, most people say it's not worth it, but I could see with you it is. And because you have high dollar and there's a lot on the line, as long as you're willing to take the risk, of you know, the loser pays five to seven hundred dollars plus the amount of the chargeback, it, it could be worth it. And they actually followed up with me um, several months later and said, actually, I think it was a little over a year, and it said that they had just done all the reporting and they had 
made more money than they lost in the arbitration process. But arbitration is very complex and um, it shouldn't be, but it is. And uh, it's almost like mediation where the loser has to pay the lawyer's fees. So um, that's something to keep in consideration. If, if you're low or mid dollar, it's not worth it. And that's what I would say 90% of all merchants do at least, at least 90 merchants, 90% merchants, they just... Um, they just let it go and and don't try to fight it. Um, I did get an interesting question from a merchant the other day via phone. They're a small business. They've been around for seven years. They got their first charge back and it was five digits, mid five digits, and they were freaking out. And uh, they had actually already tried to win the chargeback. They provided over a hundred pages of documents, which I do not recommend because no one at the processor or the issuer has that much time to dig through all of that, but they had already responded and lost and they were asking, well, is there anything else we can do? And because it was on an Amex through their processor or through an Amex merchant account through their processor, they weren't able to really do arbitration. So I said, you know, you can always send them to collections. And sometimes just the letter is enough to get them to at least not do it ever again and not to tell their friends. Uh, or you can civilly sue. When I was at Bag Bar Steel, we did end up having a lien on someone's mortgage and we had to garnish wages a couple times. It was brutal and I didn't want to do it, especially, you know, in 08 to 2010 or 11. But they were keeping the stuff that they had rented and not paying for rental fees and refusing to give it back. So what else can you do? You kind of have to force their hand. Uh, but that is something that you can do. One of them had issued chargebacks on every single one of their rental fees too. So they truly had about $40,000 worth of handbags and sunglasses and jewelry for, you know, nothing because they'd issued chargebacks. So I happen to know it works. But again, these are all business decisions. Uh, there are several other things that differ companies choose to calculate for chargebacks, but those are my go-to that I highly recommend. That's it for this episode of the Online Frogcast. Thanks for joining me. I hope you learned a lot. You know, between Brett and I, we've got a lot of fraud to talk about on this show. So subscribe to the Online Frogcast to be alerted when a new episode's out. And please tell your friends and rate and review where you can to help others learn about these important topics too. Feel free to drop us a line just to say hello, or we love to hear what you like about the show, how we can improve, and what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find us at onlinefrogcast.com, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or find us individually on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. credit card bill.